The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to a special edition of What Catholics Believe. As you see, Tom Dagley is not with us tonight. Tom has fallen ill. In fact, a number of his family members are ill, so I ask you to please pray for the Dagley family, that they recover quickly, and Tom is back with us soon. I also ask you to pray for a young mother, still in her 30s, mother of eight children. She was injured, uh, seriously injured in an automobile accident, actually a head-on collision. Uh, just a couple of days ago, and uh, she is, uh, well, first of all, she's alive, thank goodness, but she's extremely uh, critically injured and is going to require a number of very serious surgeries over a period of time. So we pray that she does recover as quickly as reasonably possible and uh, that she recover as fully as possible. Uh, please pray for her and uh, pray for her husband and children. Uh, one of our dear graduates, Monica Lichter, so please remember her and her husband Rob and the children in, in your prayers. Uh, there are a goodly number of other uh, intentions to pray for too, and I commend them all to your prayers. Uh, may God bless you for praying for them. Continue to pray for the repose of the soul of uh, Father Dolan and for Father Chicada and all the traditional priests we've known. Uh, pray for Father Randolph and so on. Uh, ask God to have mercy on them, give, give them everlasting life. Now, there are some very serious issues facing our nation right now, and I do want to talk to one of them, talk about one of them, uh, and addressing the question of the proposed assault of the churches, uh, a, a rather a pro-abortion terrorist group here in the United States of America, uh, sent out word uh, that last weekend, Mother's Day in particular, they were going to us basically invade the churches, and notably they, they said Catholic churches. And they were going to do so in protest of the uh, Supreme Court pend pending Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. That uh, came about because of the leaked document, uh, the uh, Justice Samuel Alito's um, majority opinion report, as it were, or record of the court's decision. Of course, the decision hasn't yet been made; it's not been finalized. But uh, the leak was, was issued in order to rally the pro-abortionists and to try to intimidate the pro-life cause. And notably, the judges are going to, we hope and pray, overturn Roe versus Wade. But I'll talk about that in a minute. There, there are a lot of aspects to that that need to be addressed. Some of them are being addressed. Some of them, I fear, are not being addressed, but I think they're important. I want to get into that. Because I'd like to give people kind of an overall perspective, and I, a traditional Catholic perspective, on that whole issue and uh, what is happening to our country and what is threatening to happen to our country because of it. <clears throat> but as always, I'm going to start with some of the some of the emails. Uh, people have been good enough to send us questions by email, and I think we have a certain obligation to address them, uh, at least make note of them. And I, I have a, an email in front of me here that came in recently. And it says, uh, Dear Father Jenkins and Tom, I look forward to your show each week, and I appreciate 
time you spend educating people on the Catholic religion, as it was taught and practiced for centuries prior to the new order ushered in by Vatican II. As a faithful Catholic in the SSPV, Society of St. Pius V, I would like to know what I can say to others who say to me, the SSPV is in schism, you are putting your soul in danger because to be in schism is a mortal sin. Well, I think we can all agree that to be in schism is a mortal sin objectively, although moral theologians have said that, that uh, to be in material schism, that is one who, who is separated from, let's say, a, a, a validly reigning uh, supreme pontiff and vicar of Christ on earth, one is uh, separated from them uh, through to ignorance or misinformation or, or whatever. Uh, they are not culpable and uh, would not really actually be formally in schism. But as far as schism itself goes, objectively speaking, to be in schism is, uh, well, schism itself is a mortal sin. And what it means is to cut oneself off from the lawful authority of the church. So we're not arguing about the rightness or wrongness of schism. Schism is wrong and seriously wrong. The question really is, uh, is the, the Society of St. Pius V in schism? Or is any traditional Catholic group, is any traditional Catholic priest, any traditional Catholic individual in schism? And uh, the answer is, if they are following Catholic tradition, no, it's impossible to be in schism for following Catholic tradition. In fact, the question really is not whether those who are following the traditional Catholic faith are in schism. The question is whether those who are not following the traditional Catholic faith are in schism. That's the issue. And uh, that is really, to, to break with Catholic tradition is to break with Catholic authority, because the authority of the Church has to come from Catholic tradition. It has to at least come through Catholic tradition. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> So if one is in rebellion against the, the Holy Ghost, if one, like Francis, um, you know, is constantly talking about the God of surprises because he likes to be the, the Pope of surprises and is constantly surprising us with new doctrines and so on, or uh, um, disrespecting the traditional doctrines of the Church, the question really arises whether he is in, in schism. And there are Catholics who are very ignorant about the meaning of schism, <clears throat> such as those who would make a claim like this, uh, that the Society of St. Pius V in schism, there are those Catholics who don't even know that the Pope himself can go into schism. That the Church herself has taught us that a Pope cuts himself off. If a Pope actually distances himself and cuts himself off from those who are actually practicing the traditional Catholic faith, that he himself is a schismatic. <clears throat> I'm not making this up. This is actually the Church's teaching. <clears throat> and so the Pope can be a schismatic by cutting himself off from the Catholic faithful. And uh, to say that Francis has done that, uh, actually repeatedly done that, certainly repeatedly threatened it, threatened it uh, well, that's, I think, I would hope, rather obvious to all who are paying attention by now, obvious. So, in any case, um, I think they need to educate themselves on the meaning of schism and actually to apply, apply it to the reality of the situation today. <clears throat> but I would just say it is impossible for someone who is following Catholic tradition, who, is, who believes, believes the traditional Catholic catechism, which Francis does not, it is impossible for someone who is practicing the traditional Catholic religion with the traditional Catholic Mass, the traditional Catholic sacraments, and so on, it is impossible for them to be in schism by definition. <clears throat> and one who is not following these things is by definition in schism. So I'm going to 
uh, stop there, because uh, I, I think it, it says enough, but there are probably going to be some follow-up questions on that. There should be, and I look forward to getting them. <clears throat> now, the next question is, uh, if I were asked to be this godmother of my niece or nephew, and the baptism was to be done in the old rite, but with a priest who is not of the SSPV or SSPX, would I still be able to be the godmother? Well, of course, you know, the SSPV is the Society of St. Pius V, to which I belong, uh, or the SSPX, which is the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, and the writer here is saying, if the baptism is not to be performed by one of the priests of either group, <clears throat> uh, but it is to be in the old rite, can I agree to be the godmother? Uh, first of all, with regard to the, you know, the old rite, sometimes people use that expression, the old rite and the new rite. And I, I don't think that's quite accurate in the sense that, uh, I mean, I, I know the meaning, the point being uh, that the old is the traditional rite, the new is the anti-traditional rite. Uh, but um, <clears throat> the difference between old and new, I mean, new always seems bright and shiny and somehow superior. So uh, that's what they thought they, they would convey by the idea of the new order, something bright and shiny and glorious and, and improvement, progressive and so on. It's not, though. It's actually very regressive. Uh, it goes back to barbarism. But anyway... Uh, I think instead of saying old right, we need the traditional right. We just need to insist on that expression. This is the traditional Catholic right that we're following here. But I understand the point that she's making, and it's, it's a good question. And I would say, well, if it's not being done by a priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and not being done by a priest of the Society of St. Pius X, and uh, you are uh, yourself, uh, you know, a member of the a chapel of the Society of St. Pius V, uh, you should ask yourself, well, can I legitimately be the godmother of a child who might be baptized in the traditional way, perhaps by a Novus Ordo priest, by perhaps one of the fraternity of St. Peter priests, because they are actually formally members of the Novus Ordo, that's a fact. They're trying to practice the, the traditional Catholic religion within the Novus Ordo. Um, how they can reconcile that in their own minds, I don't know. But uh, the point is, how could you accept that responsibility um, if you realize there are contradictions there and uh, you are being asked to do something that the very p parents of a child would not necessarily believe in or agree with? Uh, you'd be putting yourself in an impossible situation and taking upon yourself an impossible responsibility. A, a responsibility impossible to fulfill. Uh, let's say it's a priest of the, um, the Took line, okay, and they're going to the Took, Archbishop Took clergy. Again, I mean, there's a matter of conscience here. And again, how could you accept the responsibility that you couldn't fulfill because the parents would not want you to or allow you to fulfill that. And the question is, why would they even be asking you if they understood the issues involved? <laughs> so uh, I guess the principle that I'm bringing up here repeatedly is you can't take upon yourself a responsibility that you cannot possibly fulfill, uh, that would be most difficult or, or impossible for you to fulfill. So, um, you know, I... I one might say, well, I will tell them up front. I'll even give it to them in writing. 
that if I'm, if I'm going to serve as the godmother or godfather for this child, uh, this is what I stand for, and this is what I'm going to be teaching your child. This is the influence I'm going to have on your child. And I'm going to be trying to get them out of the Novus Ordo, uh, fully traditional Catholic, every way I possibly can, and uh, have them reject the Novus Ordo. Um, and also the, the sordidness, as Father San Juan once said, of, of the Turk bishops, and the doubtfulness, the dubiousness of it, to have them come back to the, a truly traditional Catholic chapel served by truly traditional Catholic priests. This is what I stand for. Now you might say, I'm going to present that to them and tell them this is my, this is my plan and this is the only way I can possibly accept this responsibility is if you agree to it. But I'd say that's kind of a stretch right there. So uh, I think the, probably the better, better thing to do is just to say, look, I, I can't do it as much as I'd love to do it, as much as I'd love to do it, and as much as it hurts me to have to say, no, I have to. And this is why. And perhaps you can use this as an opportunity to educate them somewhat and help them to understand more fully the reasons, the issues involved. That's what I'd recommend anyway. Uh, another email, please don't use my name. Okay, I will not. Is it okay for a Catholic man to date and or marry a never married single mom? Uh, I'll just read what it says here without mentioning names. She had a kid when she was 15. The father cheated on her and had kids with another woman. This is getting somewhat sorted here, I'm sorry. When she was 17, uh, she and the father were never married. As a newly devout Catholic man, is it a sin to date and marry her? What is the church's stance? Um, it wouldn't be a sin to date and marry her, as long as she's free to marry, and evidently she is. But, you know, you have to take into consideration the, the history here and, and ask yourself, well, is she a different person than she was when she was 15 or 17 years old? Or, and I would certainly hope so. Uh, hopefully a certain amount of wisdom sets in, repentance, genuine repentance, and uh, the idea even of making reparation by striving very, very hard to be faithful. So any man who would marry a young lady like this would have to make sure that she really is a young Catholic lady, has fully embraced the faith, and is truly responsible before God and man for the commitment she makes, and notably the commitment of marriage, uh, and in this case, matrimony, the sacrament of matrimony. So you have to be very careful, okay? Um, I mean, we have the example of some marvelously repentant women who became great saints. I mean, who was it who, who was, by the, by the grace of God, standing next to the Blessed Mother on, on Calvary, under the cross, but Mary Magdalene, of all people, and if anybody represented sinful human nature, it's Mary Magdalene. Gospel tells us that our Lord had to cast seven devils out of her. <clears throat> but she was truly repentant, and she spent her life uh, truly, um, you know, as a penitent, with great, great love. In fact, our Lord even held her up as an example when she was washing his feet with her tears and drying her, her feet with her hair and uh, accepting that, that, that humiliation really humbling herself before the entire assembly of the Pharisees who had despised her. <clears throat> uh, our Lord held her up 
as an example because she has loved much, she said. She's light, she has loved much. And uh, that's what it takes to be a saint. So, so let us hope that this uh, young lady now is no longer just a, an immature, silly girl who got herself into serious trouble, uh, but that she really is a young Catholic lady now and is, is willing and able to take the responsibility of married life and be the best wife that she can be and the best mother she can be, the best Catholic lady she can be. Now pray for that, okay? But you have to make that decision. When you do make the decision and you decide to go ahead and marry her, you're responsible and you have to work for her salvation and that she be the best, the best wife and the best mother, the best Catholic she can be. And the only way you can do that, or any right to expect it, is you're the best Catholic husband and you're the best Catholic father and you're the best Catholic gentleman that you can be. That's what you have to give her if you want her to give you, well, what you need in a wife, a Catholic wife. And uh, finally, the last question here. What would a Catholic woman who has had an abortion have to do if she truly is repentant? Does she have to go to confession and have maybe a special penance, or is there more to it? Well, that's a good question, of course. <clears throat> and uh, the, the Catholic Church uh, considers abortion not only to be a sin, but to be a crime. That means it's a scandal. And um, there's an automatic excommunication reserved to the local ordinary, who would be, well, in this case, uh, people would ordinarily think of the, the local novicerial bishop, although I don't know that that would uh, even fly at the chancery office these days. But, uh, but the, traditionally, the church automatically excommunicates for having an abortion, for committing an abortion, for paying for an abortion, for having any direct hand in that abortion. One is automatically excommunicated from the church. It doesn't even require a statement uh, from the church. It's automatic for having a direct hand in an abortion. So uh, there, there are two what they call fora involved. Okay, There's the internal form of conscience before God. I've sinned. And there is also the external form of the scandal that I've caused to the souls around me. I'm responsible for both. I have to take care of both. And that's why this is considered a crime. I can actually go to confession and I can receive absolution from a priest who is capable of granting absolution. But that doesn't solve the excommunication problem because I've still got the scandal issue. So I can confess it, I can be absolved of it. Uh, ordinarily, I think the church would have required that one repair the scandal before one could be absolved. These days, I don't think that's even possible. One would have to go to confession and ask the confessor, ask the priest, uh, Father, what do I do? I've had an abortion. I'm sincerely repentant of it now, and I need to be forgiven. Uh, what else do I need to do? And uh, the priest, I think, uh, following the mind of the church, would have to say, uh, you have to make reparation, but it has to be public in the sense that all of those who are aware of the fact that you committed an abortion have to know that you've repented and that you are actually making it as public as it needs to be anyway. Uh, if the abortion is notorious, you have to notoriously repent in, in the sense that it has to be known to those you've scandalized. You can't bring the child back. We all know that, of course. But there are other souls involved, other souls that could be very, very badly influenced by your example. You need to correct that in this life. <clears throat> so, um, 
you know, the, the, the lady, young lady and the priest would have uh, come up with some kind of a practical way to do that. She'd have to agree to do that, uh, to find a practical way to apologize for that, admit that it was a terrible evil and that she is terribly sorry for it and that she seeks, sought God's forgiveness and please don't follow her bad example. So anyway, um, that would be actually the least that would have to be done. And I think under most circumstances probably would be the most that could be done. Uh, but it's important to go to a, a real traditional Catholic priest who can give you advice on that. As I say, the most important thing for you to do, though, would be to repent of it sincerely, uh, but have confidence in the mercy of our Lord to forgive. And uh, to go to him, because he is the one giving you the grace to repent, it's not just you who have decided to repent. Our Lord is actually calling you to him right now. Our Lord is calling you to him by giving you that grace and putting this in your mind and your heart. Repent, come to me, I want to forgive you. So answer him, come to him. Don't ignore what, what he's called to you. He wants to forgive you, but you have to make it possible by repenting and asking his forgiveness. And then uh, ask the priest for direction, as to, with the practical direction of what you have to do to try to repair as much as you can the evil that was done. So, uh, with that, uh, you know, we, we do pray for those who write to us, and we'll continue to pray for everyone here, and I, as I know, you pray for us too. And I wanted to go on to the question here that has uh, really confronted our nation here, and actually, which is um, not only very much in the news now, but it's actually uh, almost dominating the news, even, even to the point of challenging uh, the narrative of the war in the Ukraine, uh, and that is the basic insurrection against the judiciary of our country, because that is truly an insurrection, uh, trying to uh, basically uh, compel the, the Supreme Court of the United States to uh, basically submit to the will of the leftist mob. That's, that's truly an insurrection. It should be treated as such. The trouble is, of course, the country is in, in the hand of the leftists. Resident Biden and his cronies are actually, uh, and his DOJ and the FBI and all, they're all seemingly, it appears from the way things are handled, in the back pocket of the leftists now, or at least under, dominated by the leftists. And so it is the leftists who get away with virtually everything, it seems. And uh, the conservatives who have to be af afraid that if they make a mistake, even being invited by the Capitol Police to enter the, uh, the Capitol building on January 6th, that they're going to wind up jailed without trial for a year or two or more. Um, so this is the lay of the land right now. This is what happens when leftists take power. Um, so we have a situation here that uh, uh, Justice Alito's uh, basically statement of the majority opinion, uh, this is a preliminary statement of the preliminary opinion, actually, um, about Roe versus Wade, uh, has been leaked by somebody in the, some functionary of the court, uh, some, somebody in the employ of uh, one of the eight sitting justices of the Supreme Court uh, chose to leak this. And the thought is it is one of the leftists who is trying to um, stir up so much trouble 
that uh, the justices, we understand five of them, who are voting to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade, at le- uh, that at least among those five, one will be intimidated into changing that vote. So this is exactly what it seems like. And we know, we, we've seen pictures of the, uh, the mobs outside the homes of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Alito. He and his family are now in hiding, actually. They're, they're in almost like protective custody, it seems, um, because of the mobs. Even uh, Justice Roberts had, had protesters. Um, it's hard to call them protesters because they're, they're worse than that. Uh, they're not, you know, anyway, what can one say? Anyway, Justice Alito issued this, this preliminary majority opinion. It's an excellent, excellent analysis of Roe versus Wade, though. And it is really worth reading. And I would like to see us put a link, uh, on what Catholics believe to that opinion, because it is really a, a, it's going to be a classic statement of Roe versus Wade and the tragedy of Roe versus Wade. It's going to go down in history, I think, as that. So uh, Justice Samuel Alito has now been moved with his family to an undisclosed location because of the threats made against him and his loved ones. And this is how leftists do things. You know, this is how they, they bully and they terrorize and they terrify and they, um, they make people, uh, let's say, give in. Um, now, this is all due to that leak that I mentioned. They're still trying to determine who, who is responsible for it. There are even some who suggest, some who suggested right away that it was somebody in the employ of the Chief Justice himself, John Roberts. I don't know what evidence there is for that. I don't know that there is any evidence for it. I don't know why people would immediately go to that, but some people evidently think that uh, there's reason to believe that. Well, <clears throat> it appears that uh, the five justices who are, or already have at least, preliminarily voted uh, to overturn Roe versus Wade, are, uh, well, we have Justice uh, Samuel Alito, of course, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch. Not John Roberts. Roberts is a Bush appointee, as you know. He's the one who basically, who ultimately gave us Obamacare. Uh, saying it was the tax, <clears throat> and uh, the story about John Roberts is the Chief Justice is voting with the liberals Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, <clears throat> and uh, what he wants to do, we're told, is um, to f- slowly dismantle Roe versus Wade, and uh, piecemeal, little by little. And uh, that he wants to convince one of the other, the five justices voting against it, he wants to convince at least one of them to come to his side, to trying to win them over, not to overturn Roe versus Wade. Well, I don't know that for a fact. This is what is being said by those who claim to know, and perhaps they do. Let's take a look at the Roe versus Wade decision, though. Okay, um, you know we can't read the. Uh, the account of Samuel Alito, the assessment of Roe versus Wade, uh, authored by Justice Alito here. It's too lengthy, but it is definitely worth the time and effort to read it. But I would just say this. You know, the Roe versus Wade decision came on January 22nd, 1973. 
And uh, it was like an atomic bomb going off in the country. In fact, I would say that that was the turning point where our country actually lost its soul, in a sense. Lost its soul because it denied the soul of the, of the uh, conceived child. Denied the soul of the conceived child. And it did so because Roe versus Wade was not really a medical decision. It wasn't really a legal decision. It uh, had nothing really to do with medicine and had nothing to do with law. Okay? Uh, Harry Blackman, who wrote the majority uh, position on it, um, was not only really guilty of bad law, but he actually was basing himself and the majority, uh, seven, seven to two was the vote, uh, the majority of seven actually were basing their opinion on, on very bad philosophy because they were playing the philosophers. They weren't actu actually acting as Supreme Court justices deciding matters of law or the constitutionality of law. Um, they, they might have made a, a passing effort to, to play uh, medicine man uh, trying to talk about life, human life beginning. But when they start talking about potential life, when they start talking about potential life, I mean, they're talking words of philosophy. That's not law. This is very bad philosophy. And they even were getting into the question, uh, although they might not have ex even admitted this, as to who is human. They're going to decide who is human. What is human life? Now, nowadays, the, those who are nominated to the Supreme Court can't even tell you what a woman is. Back in 1973, they were trying to tell you who is human and who is, who is not. I mean, even the, the Politburo, e even, uh, even the, the Central Committee of the, of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union never dis went so far as to say, we're going to determine who is human and who is not. But the Supreme Court of the United States, by a majority of five people, decided for the nation uh, who is human and who is not. They decided that the child in the womb is not human. That this is only potential life, as they called it. Who are these people to make a decision like that? And why would that be considered a matter of law? They're playing the philosopher. And I say it's very bad philosophy. <clears throat> when it's only potential life, there's no soul. When there's no soul... There's no human life, obviously. And uh, you take the soul away from the, the unborn child. You just did away with it entirely. When does a person get a soul? They, they're, they're basically arguing that it isn't this, the soul that makes someone human. It's a matter of biological development. That's all. And they were kind of speculating as to what would come of that in the future in terms of how it would determine what biological development uh, would actually make one human. This was a disaster. And so Alito is right. But not only Samuel Alito, but I mean, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg talked about the disaster of Roe versus Wade, what a, what a mess of law it was. And uh, Joe Biden was against it. He thought it was a, a terrible judicial decision just because it was such a mess. Uh, legally, it was such a mess. So uh, basically what the, the so-called conservatives on the court are deciding now is saying that after all this, this legacy of all these years, 50 years after all, of turmoil and tragedy, that yes, Roe versus Wade is a mess legally. 
And it is, it is unworthy of the United States of America, of the Supreme Court of the United States, and they're trying to rectify a tragic mistake based upon basic, basically just prejudice. Um, so but this is the problem you have, though, see. Um, there's a danger in placing politicians on the courts. You, you don't want politicians and you don't want political activists and your courts. And John Roberts, I think, uh, he come to, comes to mind. I mean, if in fact, he's, again, playing the politician here, wanting to kind of negotiate somehow the question of Roe versus Wade and strike some kind of deals or work something out and, uh, and so on. I mean, that's what a politician does, okay? Politician is a wheeler dealer who negotiates. He doesn't think in terms of principle. But when you need a judge, when you, when you need someone to actually sit in judgment of the constitutionality of a law uh, in the United States, you need someone who thinks in terms of principle because he has made an oath to uphold the Constitution. And he has to think in terms of principle, not in terms of politics. Um, I'd like to think that Justice Samuel Alito and Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch are thinking in terms of principle and therefore that they are making the right decision for the right reason. And I do ask you all to pray for him, for them as I pray for them, that they will have the courage to stand by that, that they will make the right decision for the right reason, have the courage to stand by it. Because they, um, well, they unleashed a firestorm, as they were told, and they are now targeted. Um, if John Roberts uh, votes with Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer and is trying to dissuade one of the other Supreme Court justices to uh, join them, then again, he's playing the politician, not, not the, the Supreme Court justice that he, we need. Uh, the United States of America needs. So anyway, that's what politicians do. Okay? And uh, again, again, the sound of this, the last thing in the world we need is politicians and political activists on the Supreme Court. But, I mean, you look at what, um, you look at what Joe Biden has done. I mean, we talk about Justice Roberts here, and he was appointed by Bush. But uh, we look at those who've been appointed by named, nominated by, and approved, actually, uh, nominated by Joe Biden. And you see, they are political activists. Uh, that's where they come from, that's what they are, and that's what they're going to do on the court. And it's, it's a, a short road to chaos and revolution. When you appoint politicians and political activists to the courts, you sow the seeds of chaos and revolution. That is what rhinos have been doing. That's what President Biden has been doing all this time. And, um, you know, we, we see what's going on with the Hunter Biden laptop and all the chicanery and the subterfuge going on there. No wonder there are those who consider uh, Joseph Biden to be the commander in thief. And uh, actually associated with last Sunday's or two Sundays ago, the gospel uh, by den of thieves, as though he turning the, the government of the United States into, uh, you know, a den of thieves. Well, there are those who have reason to question that, to think that and want that resolved. And that's all they're asking. They're asking that that question be resolved here. 
Um, but there are those making these accusations, and they seem to have uh, evidence. They, they believe they have evidence to, to establish it. And uh, that has to be decided. You know, how long can the nation uh, go uh, under these circumstances? God knows. In any case, there are outstanding questions uh, that need to be addressed. Well, in any case, <clears throat> the matter of assaulting the homes of the Supreme Court justices has gone also on to the matter of assaulting the churches now. And the group Ruth sent us now, it's an abortion hit squads, uh, were threatening last Sunday, uh, Mother's Day, to uh, invade the churches uh, and to disrupt worship in those churches. And they singled out what they called the Catholic churches. Um, we saw some video of a number of these uh, people uh, dressed up in their Halloween costumes of the Handmaid's Tale. And again, you know, some of you might not be that conversant with what this all means, the Handmaid's Tale, where you can go on online and you can find out what that means. It uh, was an American dystopian television series created by Bruce Miller based on the 1985 novel of the same name by a Canadian author named Margaret, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, no her name, <laughs> I don't have it here right now, uh, Margaret Atwood, Margaret Atwood. Uh, Margaret seems to specialize in writing dystopian novels about, um, about uh, uh, what you'd say, kind of dysfunctional people. <laughs> and uh, this particular novel, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is called a graphic novel, is supposed to portray a future world, especially here, the United States, which is no more, and has been taken over by some quasi-biblical group, which has reduced women to be handmaids, and has actually singled out a, a certain group of women to be the breeders for the rich and the famous men in the world who control them. And they're nothing but there and used for breeding. And uh, I thought, well, my goodness, doesn't this sound like Jeffrey Epstein's dream world? Isn't this actually the Democrats' idea of how the world should be? Isn't that what Epstein was trying to do on his island? And look at all of the famous people who went to it and decided to be part of that uh, dystopian world. Um, and what now what these women are doing is they're going around uh, dressed in these Halloween costumes of these red robes and these white bonnets, and they're protesting that world as though it is the Catholics, as though it is the conservatives who are bringing this about, when it's, it's their own uh, leftist uh, leaders who are trying to create that world for them. Um, how moronic can one get? I mean, it, it, I, I know it, it can be somewhat uh, offensive to use the word moronic, but even St. Thomas Aquinas uses the word scultus in the Summa Theologiae. I mean, he he uses the word, he doesn't say someone is stultus, he doesn't say somebody is stupid, okay? But he does say that somebody speaks stulte, stupidly, in saying, saying this. Early in the Summa, he talks about someone who thought that the world kind of created itself, and he thought that was just stulte, he spoke stulte, stupidly. So when I say moronic, I, I mean it in the, in the classical sense that it... It is speaking stupidly. It's not saying people are stupid, but even the brightest person in the world can do stupid things. 
I mean, uh, Joseph Stalin was not a stupid person uh, in the sense that he was not, he was not uh, bright and clever. He was, unfortunately, but he acted very stupidly and he did terrible, terrible things for that. Same with Mao, same with so many of the other dictators in the world. They were very bright, but they just weren't as bright as they thought they were. And so they made very stupid mistakes. They acted stulte, stupidly. So it can happen with very, very bright people, gifted people who use their gifts, unfortunately, for evil and not for good. So we have these people who are wandering the earth out here, wandering our country, are threatening to invade the churches and uh, to protest against the Catholic Church because they say the Catholic Church historically has oppressed women. Well, I would ask these women to please uh, take a little vacation. Take a vacation. Perhaps you'd even be able to uh, fund their way, pay, uh, for all expenses paid a vacation, to a Muslim country. Let them go to Saudi Arabia. Let them go to Qatar. Let them go to a Muslim country and live as women do in these Muslim countries. And they will see what life was like for women in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus Christ. Let them get a good taste of that. Let them go now to a, a let them go to Afghanistan and live under the Taliban. And they will see how women lived in society before the coming of Jesus Christ. Let them find that out. Let them get a good taste of that. Then let them come back and complain about what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. They should read the epistle of the Ephesians about St. Paul, how he does tell women to respect their husbands, yes, but he also tells the husband to love their wives as Christ laid down his life for his wife for his bride. Oh, these, it's, it's ignorance. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's ignorance in, in the case of most of them, but there just seems to be such a, a malice in them now caused by that, that ignorance. I don't know if there's any retreating them at this point. Only God can do that. But anyway, this is, this is what we're dealing with here, okay? The idea that they want to invade the churches. Uh, and when I first heard this, the proposal of this Ruth sent us, by the way, this Ruth they're talking about is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the very one who was criticizing Roe versus Wade as being bad jurisprudence. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was, she was pro-abortion. She favored abortion, so-called rights. And she just didn't think Roe versus Wade was very good uh, as a matter of, again, judicial decision. <coughs> But in saying that Ruth sent us, they're not, they're not actually complimenting Ruth because, I mean, these people are actually sent by, by powers hell to disrupt the church services. I don't think Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this life would have done that. Whether she would do it from where she is now, well, that's what they're basically saying, that Ruth is sending them from where she is right now to disrupt the churches. And that doesn't uh, give us a lot of hope for Ruth Bader Ginsburg or make us very optimistic about uh, what became of her soul. But this is what they've chosen to say. Ruth sent us, so that's where they're sending her. Um, so the first thing that occurred to me when I heard about this plan of the Ruth sent us terrorists is uh, that this was a real honor. I felt greatly honored that they would say, well, look, we know that there are a lot of people out there who are opposing abortion. They're, they're the fundamentalists and, and so on, Protestant fundamentalists and all these other groups. And, uh, and uh, Jewish Orthodox groups are opposing abortion. But uh, those Catholics, we, we, we've got to put them in their place. We've got to show them that we're not going to let them have their way. 
And so the second thing, after I thought, this is a real honor to be singled out by the enemies of God, the enemies of his church, uh, the second thing that occurred to me, well, why would they single out the Novus Ordo for this uh, honor, as though the Novus Ordo was the great obstacle to abortion rights in this country? Because the Novus Ordo is not the great obstacle. I mean, after Roe versus Wade was uh, adjudicated in 1973, uh, the bishops, they, this was after Vatican II, and all the entire new order was coming in, and the new mass and all the rest. Uh, the, the bishops at the time were afraid to make it a Catholic issue. And they said so. They, they wanted uh, the leadership of other religions to come forward and lead the way. And they would follow, but they didn't want uh, the people in America, neither the Catholics nor the non-Catholics, to regard this as a Catholic issue. Well, you know, real Catholics would say, well, of course it's a Catholic issue. Our church is the one true church, founded by Jesus Christ, and we belong in the front. Not these bishops, though. They're cowards. <clears throat> and uh, they were not men of faith. And they said, we need to take a back seat on this. Um, and so, why would the Novus Ordo now be singled out by these abortion terrorists for a special hatred? And the third thing I thought then was, because they know deep down that when it comes right down to it, the Catholic Church is the true Church. And even in the weakened state, and lying prostrate in the dust right now, what the modernists have done to the church is criminal, and they see that the church has already been through the Great Reset, and the Novus Ordo is this new mass, new liturgy they have. I mean, the Ch Vatican II was the Great Reset in the church, and it had to happen before the Great Reset in the world could happen. And so, uh, but even still, even still, even after that has happened, and the church is in the condition she's in now, kind of rack and ruin, but still there, the faith remains in the traditional Catholics, and the religion remains in the traditional Catholic practice. They recognize that that is the enemy. The fundamentalist Protestants, the Orthodox Jews, they realize that these are not the forces that can stop them. They realize that the church established by Jesus Christ, by him and him alone, that he and he alone can stop them. And they are moved by a hatred for him personally in, a, in aborting their children and demanding that others, others are complicit in the aborting children, aborting of children. So, so these are the three things that occurred to me when I first heard this, and they occurred in rapid succession. Um, so I do really find it a great honor and an admission on their part that the Catholic Church even historically in this, in, this, in this ravaged condition that she is, ravaged by the modernists, the Catholic Church is the force that will withstand evil and the enemies of God. And that's where they take their hatred. That's where they take their malice. Um, you know, Matt Walsh, uh, I'm sure many of our readers, uh, listeners are familiar with the name Matt Walsh. Recently, he was talking about how ugly pro-abortion women are. And he was going on for quite some time about how ugly and hideous they are. 
Well, actually, uh, about a week ago, I mentioned this to a group of uh, our men, how pro-abortion women are really ugly people. But I told them, I, by that I don't mean that they're physically unattractive or physically repulsive, but the hatred and the malice that they show on their faces so twists their features that they look demonic. That is why they look so ugly, <clears throat> with an unearthly ugliness, because of their rage and their malice and their hatred <clears throat> against what? Against human life, really. Uh, against the role of motherhood. They're actually, they hate that. That's why they were going to invade the churches during Mother's Day. It was actually a protest against motherhood. <clears throat> they hate motherhood. They, they despise, they detest it. They look upon it as slavery. And how dare God do this to them? Their hero is Lilith. Lilith, the, uh, the first woman created for Adam in their, in their lore of their Gnostic beliefs. You heard of the Lilith festivals they have? Well, they're celebrating this rebellious woman who refused, <clears throat> refused to submit, to submit to motherhood. So, in any case, um, what, what they want us to do here, they're, they're so furious about, is that we will not comply. And they, they make this point very, very forcefully. They say, why are you insisting on imposing your morality on me? Why won't you just comply with my wishes? <clears throat> that I should have the right to murder my child. They don't say it that, but they know that's what it is. They know deep down that's exactly what it is. I'll show it to you in just a second. I'll prove it to you in <laughs> just a second. Um, why will you not comply with this? <clears throat> um, and the answer is simply because uh, the word comply includes the word complicit, really, the same root. And uh, the word complicit involves being an accomplice. And we cannot comply with their wishes to murder their child without becoming their accomplices and being complicit in the crime. We can't do it. In conscience, we can't. We have to stand against it. Just as if we would not allow an aggressor to murder an innocent person. So we can't simply step aside and become complicit in the murder of these unborn children. They say, but it's not a child. It is not a child. They insist it's not a child. And you know what? We insist it is a child. In fact, we even say that not only do we insist it's a child, but they know it's a child too. They know very well it's a child. In fact, that's exactly why they demand the right to abort it. That's why they need to abort it. They need to abort it because it is a child. It is a baby. They know that. And it's worthless to even argue with the point because they're being anti-rational and they're guilty of one of those sins against the Holy Ghost, the, the rejection the obstinate rejection of a known truth. That's a sin against the Holy Ghost for which there is no forgiveness in this world or the next because there can be no repentance. So if they're, if they're arguing that this is not a child, <clears throat> they, are, they are guilty of, well, at least apparently guilty 
of arguing against a known truth. This is a child. And we have to insist that it is a child, and not only do we know it's a child, but their purpose is to destroy that child's life because it is a child. That's the whole point. They know it's a child, and they have to abort it because they don't want responsibility for that child's life. They don't want to be responsible for that child. <clears throat> if they conceive the child, that's one thing. They have to destroy the child's life before it's born because once it's born, by law, they are responsible for nurturing that child. <clears throat> and they don't want their responsibility. They, they do not want the responsibility of motherhood. It interferes with their plans to live their lives as they wish. And so they hate the idea of being mothers <clears throat> for this life, because this life is inconvenient for me. It is not actually according to my plan for myself. Now, uh, when I say that they know it's a child, and that's exactly why they want to abort it, um, I can actually quote one of the premier voices for abortion here in America. But I mean, we, we can also, uh, I'll quote that, that author uh, in a minute, but look what happened here in Cincinnati, okay? There was a, uh, the uh, abortion activist whom uh, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, appointed as the health commissar, the head of the health, health department in Ohio, the one who engineered the lockdowns and the closed schools and all the rest, uh, Amy Acton is her name. Um, when she imposed these lockdowns, she said that essential services could continue. Um, she even named uh, churches as essential services. But then there was an effort made to shut down the abortion clinics because they were not essential services. A federal judge ruled <clears throat> that the abortion clinics would remain open because they were essential services. Now, this was at the same time that uh, cancer screenings were stopped. They were just stopped. <clears throat> Everything but, but, uh, but uh, emergency medical procedures were stopped because of the pandemic. But abortion had to go on. Why? Because what's in the womb is not merely a clump of cells. It is a child on the way to being born, and it has to be stopped. When they stopped all the other medical procedures, the routine standard medical procedures, but they insisted, no, no, this is essential, that women have to be able to abort their children. What does that tell you? What is that actually saying? That's an admission. That this is not just a tumor we're talking about here. Tumors were protected by the pandemic. No, we can't go screening for tumors, but we can sure go screening for, screening for babies, and we can destroy them because that's essential. That's essential. Shouldn't surprise us, though, after all, because a uh, uh, poor, deluded woman named Mary Elizabeth Williams, writing in Salon magazine back in January 23rd, 2013, <coughs> January 23rd, the day after the anniversary of the Roe vs. Wade decision, 
uh, in Salon magazine, kind of a flagship uh, leftist rag here. She writes an article, so what if abortion ends life? Question mark. And she says, I believe that life starts at conception. And it's never stopped me from being pro-choice, she says. So saith Mary Elizabeth Williams, okay? One of the lead uh, columnists for Salon Magazine, at least at the time. Here's what she said in her article. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Where, and she continues later in the article, here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving kill your grandmother and uh, your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. She might as well go sig Heil at that point to the Fuhrer, right? At that point. She continues, when we on the pro-choice side get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. What is this woman saying about Roe versus Wade herself now? <laughs> Talking about illogically contradictory, because we're not facing the fact that this is human life. Roe versus Wade is what actually brought that whole thing into question, right? in the first place, by talking about cagey potential life. So here we have this woman herself talking about that this is almost embarrassing to dance around this question. We should just come out in a forthright say, way and say, this is a human life, but my life is more important. My life is more important than that life. And I have a right to kill it. She says, when we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester abortion versus late term, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Well, she's describing Roe versus Wade here. She's saying it's illogical and it's just hygienous and it, it disgraces us to talk like this. She finally ends her article by saying, and I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time. Even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed a life, a life worth sacrificing, she says, worth sacrificing to her. This poor woman, she was a senior writer for Salon at the time. I don't know what's become of her. She had cancer last I heard. I actually offered some prayers for her in the hope that she would kind of uh, change her uh, thoughts before she goes to meet her Lord and Savior and her judge. 
But to, to return to the matter of uh, the matter at hand, these threats to invade the churches, uh, not much happened on uh, on Mother's Day, as you know. All of these threats that uh, had so many uh, Catholics and would-be Catholics fearful uh, that had them kind of getting security details going in their churches and deciding what to do when the church were, were invaded by intruders, shouting, uh, cursing, uh, accusing them. Um, not much happened. Why? Perhaps it was just uh, an empty threat. Perhaps they just wanted to, uh, uh, as it were, fire a shot across the bow of the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, perhaps they just wanted to terrorize people and let them go through a Mother's Day ruined by their, the threat of their invasion and their abuse. Um, maybe it was that. Uh, perhaps they got some legal counsel who told them that it is a crime to invade churches and to disrupt religious services. And that's a fact. It is a crime in many, most, maybe all states in one form or another. It is a crime, at least misdemeanor, and in some cases even felonious, to invade religious services that are being conducted by people who are just exercising their religious rights and to disrupt those services. And uh, that's very interesting uh, for us. We need to know that. They need to know that, that they're committing a crime. Remember, you know, they may say, and I'm sure they have, well, look, why shouldn't we go into those churches and disrupt their worship? After all, they come into our abortion clinics. <clears throat> they have their priests come in with lay people, <clears throat> and they invade the abortion clinics and they give people roses, and they try to talk women out of getting abortions, which is legitimate business, actually. I mean, these are paying customers, and they're trying to turn people away from it. Uh, so why shouldn't we be able to do the same thing? And then you point out, well, yeah, it's true. I mean, there are, there are clergymen who actually go into the abortion clinics and lead uh, some ladies, mostly ladies, sometimes men too, into the abortion clinics to try to convince the women not to murder their babies and not to let the abortionists murder their babies. That's true. But what happens to them? What do you have happen to them? You call the police. You have the police <clears throat> go into your clinic offices. <clears throat> you have them twist the arms of these pro-lifers, invaders, behind their backs, and you have them handcuff them, and you have them dragged out, dragged out, of the abortion clinic, dragged over the pavement, tossed into the back of the squad cars or the paddy wagons, taken off, charged with crimes, criminal trespassing, uh, spending the night in jail or longer, and uh, fined. That's what you do when people do that. You're, and you want to hold that up as a justification for you? Well, are you saying that that's what should happen to you? If you say that that's what should happen to people who come into our clinics and disrupt our services, our health services, so why shouldn't we go into their churches? Well, maybe you, if you should be treated the same way, if that's what you want, if that's what you agreed to, all right, that's what you should expect. But actually, the laws of the country, uh, the laws of the individual states provide for that. Uh, in fact, in Canada, I understand that church wardens have the right to arrest anyone 
who would <clears throat> disrupt a church service. What does it say about Justin Trudeau and all of the, the, uh, the lockdowns and the closed churches and the, and the goon squads he sends in to beat up people and haul them away who try to hold a religious service in Canada in spite of the so-called pandemic now? <clears throat> the law says that anyone who had disrupted a religious service <clears throat> is subject to arrest and penalties, even imprisonment, for a certain amount of time. And... Um, and that is upon conviction, they are to be taken away. So, my dear people, uh, we are facing a, a, an insurrection, there's no doubt about it. And it is actually the, the, the same sexual in, insurrection that went back to Roe versus Wade and the, the abortion pill, the, um, the um, uh, so-called uh, contraceptive pill and all the rest. All of that led to what we see now as, a, as a, a, an absolute, uh, well, hatred of human life, as God made it. <clears throat> a hatred of motherhood, a hatred of marriage. In other words, a hatred of God who, who created these things and instituted these things. An absolute rebellion. This is what the Great Reset is all about. As I say, it took place in, in the church back in Vatican II. And the Vatic Vatican II actually, in the aftermath, established the New World Order, the New <coughs> Religious Order, the New Mass, and its sacraments. And uh, what we see here, just as we have Supreme Court justices now who are politicians and political activists, so that's what we have in the Episcopacy right now of the Novus Ordo. We had, again, politicians and political activists. God help us, right? God help them. So we need to know what's happening before our very eyes. And what this should do is make us understand, have a better understanding of why it's happening. We realize fundamentally this is a spiritual battle here. It is really a religious question about our allegiance to our Lord Jesus Christ as the King of all mankind past, present, future, and uh, the ultimate church triumphant in heaven, that is where our allegiance goes. It goes ultimately to Christ in heaven. We are, uh, but we have to be loyal to him and faithful to him here on earth. In his real presence in the Blessed Sacrament, in his coming to us in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, we have to be loyal and faithful to him here. And if we, there's a price to pay, so be it. Be honored by that. Be thankful for it, that you're found worthy. When St. Peter and St. John <clears throat> healed the poor lame man, um, they were brought up, they were confronted by, this, by the leaders of the Jews for preaching in the name of Christ. They were forbidden to preach in his name. And finally, they were, they were beaten. They were beaten. And they came away from that beating Rejoicing. They were thanking God that they were found worthy, worthy to suffer something for our Lord. They considered that to be a great, great honor that had been bestowed upon them by the enemies of Christ. <clears throat> you think about St. Thomas More, 1500 years later, when he 
was actually arraigned for his opposition to Henry claiming to be the head of the church in England, and charged with actually being against the marriage, right? Um, the, incest, the, the adulterous marriage of Henry to Anne Boleyn. And Thomas More came away from that so lighthearted that his daughter Meg thought that everything had gone splendidly for him. And St. Thomas More's reaction was, well, no, Meg, I, I just discovered that I will not be broken by fear of being found, being charged for Christ's sake, for being faithful. And he was so humble that he feared that he might crumble at, in fear of the charges and the penalties that they brought. But he was so happy that he was given the grace to stand his ground for what he believed is right. Well, we have to take, again, the, these examples of the apostles, St. Thomas More, and so many others like them. The examples that God has provided for us, and we have to stand very firm for our faith. It's a matter of love, ultimately. It has to be. That's what Thomas More said. He said, Meg, ultimately, it, it is a matter of love. And so it must be with us, too. God bless you all. Please keep us all in your prayers, especially those intentions I've given you and so many others uh, whom God knows. And uh, may God bless you. And hopefully next week, Tom will be well enough to rejoin us. Good night.